Welcome to the Molecular Therapy Podcast. I'm Dr. Rory Bricker-Anthony, Scientific Editor of the Molecular Therapy Family of Journals. This episode features a conversation between Dr. Paloma Giangrande, Editor-in-Chief of Molecular Therapy Nucleic Acids and Chief Technology Officer at Eleven Therapy, and Dr. Maxime Berezovsky, Professor of Bioanalytical Chemistry at the University of Ottawa. They will discuss a recent article published in Molecular Therapy Nucleic Acids by Dr. Berezovsky and colleagues titled Discovery of DNA Aptamers Targeting SARS-CoV-2 Nucleocapsid Protein and Protein-Binding Epitopes for Label-Free COVID-19 Diagnostics. Before we begin, are you ready for the ASGCT annual meeting? Now is the time to register. Unlock two discounts when you pair ASGCT membership and early bird discounts. Members save $485 by registering before the February 29th early bird deadline. Tackling everything from CRISPR to cancer, ASGCT is the cell and gene therapy conference that matters most. But you must act fast. This unmatched community of scientists and clinicians is heading to Baltimore from May 7th through 11th. Reserve your spot at the year's most anticipated cell and gene therapy event. Register at asgct.org 2024 before February 29th to maximize your savings. The future of medicine awaits. So it's a pleasure to have Dr. Maxim Berzowski on our podcast today. Um, as you know, we're here to discuss Dr. Berzowski's article, uh, recently published in Molecular Therapy Nucleic Acids, titled Discovery of DNA Aptamers Targeting SARS-CoV-2 Nucleocaspid Protein and Protein-Binding Epitopes for uh, Label-Free uh, COVID-19 Diagnostics. What um, you may not know or be aware of is that his article has been receiving a lot of interest lately from our readership and the field at large, given its focus directed at streamlining diagnostics for viral vaccine development, including diagnostics for COVID-19. For those of you who don't know, Maxine uh, has been a longtime colleague of mine and a collaborator. And he is also a recognized expert in the field of aptamer technology, automation at large, uh, as well as diagnostics. And so without um, further ado, Maxine, it's a true pleasure to have you here today. Let's get started. Uh, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what aptamers are and what brought you to work with aptamers for diagnostic applications? Uh, yeah, thank you, Paloma, for this nice opportunity to talk about aptamers. It's my passion for many years. I started to develop aptamers uh, in 2002, so when I did PhD at uh, York University in Toronto, again, 
simple optimers for recombinant proteins, then I move uh, to developing optimers to cells, immune cells, uh, like dendritic cells or cancer cells. And yeah, uh, recently we, because of the this COVID situation, so we uh, obtained uh, grant uh, from Canadian government to develop uh, diagnostics based on optimers. It's uh, our expertise. Optimers are great, especially for research labs, because like two things. So easy to develop. You don't need any cells. You can select optimers on the bench. And uh, any graduate student and some experienced undergraduate student can develop optimers through iterative uh, process of uh, called Celex where you just uh, incubate, wash, amplify DNA or RNA, and eventually you will get a, a pool of optimers binding to your target. And if you introduce positive and negative uh, selection steps, negative means, for example, you wash out, uh, you remove optimers to unwanted targets, and you can specify your optimers to a specific like protein versus, uh, again, a bunch of other proteins or a specific cell in the presence of other cells. So that's why, again, the first one, it's easy to obtain the optimus. Second, you can synthesize for low cost, so, which is important for academic labs, uh, and incorporate this uh, synthetic DNA or RNA molecules to sensors to which, like, any engineer will like because it's so easy to attach. You you actually control every step of uh, attaching optimer to the sensor. So you you know if it's uh, like uh, you want to attach to the five prime or three prime or in the middle of the optimer, you can always do that, and you be sure that like the structure of the sensor you're obtaining, and you can attach multiple optimers, like uh, one or two optimers or Trimer of optimers and increase the specificity and, and selectivity. Yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you for that great um, overview. And I guess what you're saying is that optimers, uh, we can, they're kind of analogous to antibodies, but the advantage is that they are um, easier to sort of develop. Uh, and also uh, conjugate, chemically modify, yeah. and um, apply them for many different applications. So it really, you know, you can handle them and can be handled by many different... Exactly. Um, you can control every step in production of optimers and every step in making a, a sensor. And plus, optimers consider chemicals, not biologics. That's why they're... Uh, regulatory approvals are different, so you don't need to test them on the presence of like uh, DNA or other proteins because they are again chemistry-based synthesized, and uh, so the requirements are less uh, harsh uh, than uh, for like for example. Yeah, yeah biological. Well, that's great, and that's a really good point. And so. Um, the many different um, diagnostic tests that have been approved by the FDA for COVID-19, which are not just um, uh, antibody-based or serological antibody-based tests, but include also PCR-based detection, right? 
why develop a new diagnostic test for COVID-19? Um, and again, if you can highlight those advantages of your approach and technology versus similar technologies for detection of COVID-19 specifically. First, why uh, we see a commercial SARS-CoV-2 test based on antibodies? I think because of the existed infrastructure like uh, biotech infrastructure uh, of producing sensors or lateral flow devices or uh, any other sensors based on antibodies. So there are many companies developing the antibody-based sensors for many years. And when COVID happens, so they just switch one antibody to another antibody. So they already had all the reagents ready. They just need to validate and uh, proceed. That's why they were first who approved the antibody-based tests. Mm -hmm. So with minutes, we need to go through the whole process of approval and setting up the kind of commercial workflow uh, of the new tests. That's why we didn't have time. So we what we, <laughs> we managed just to finish the project and publish it. <laughs> Why do you think it was important to develop an optimer-based approach, given that there were already other approaches that had been approved? I mean, you you clearly saw advantages of your optimer approach, potentially more sensitivity, being able to detect uh, a potential infection much earlier due to the sensitivity. Uh, were there other things in mind that made you go down the route of developing an optimer-based diagnostic? I would mention two main uh, reasons. First, so we developed Optimus quite quickly. And I also saw many companies like Optimus-based companies, they developed DNA or RNA Optimus quite quickly to the SARS-CoV-2 like virus. So it's a matter of um, uh, actually one month or two months. Validation of the test takes longer. And that's why the future of Optimus, it's in the fast, development of, uh, again, Optimus to unknown pathogens. Mm -hmm. So if you already have a, a selection instrument and uh, DNA sequencer and synthesizer, you can make your own Optimus in a matter of, uh, again, one, two weeks. So that's why for myself, I think that Optimal technology is excellent technology for the doom situations when the next <laughs> unknown pathogen, unknown virus, uh, uh, unknown uh, like bacterial um, infection comes. So you can fast produce the, again, this recognition elements as optimers. So essentially to, um, to summarize, like really, um, a strong, robust platform that can allow you to really move really quickly for in the event of a, of a next pandemic, right? Yeah. And much faster than current technologies. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, and uh, the second reason, Paloma, uh, yeah. once I know the sequence of optimals, I can send you and your of my colleague the sequence by email. And you can, right in a few days, synthesize the same optimals I like I have it here in Canada, you can make it in the United States, in Europe, Japan, Asia, China, any country. 
So if you have a DNA synthesizer. Yes. So it's very convenient. Yeah, that's brilliant. And so um, because your technology is quite complex and detailed, uh, but also very elegant, can you briefly describe the process that you use to identify these uh, DNA aptamers? And specifically the process they use to identify the aptamers to the nucleocaspid and protein of mm. SARS-CoV-2. The process was, it was very straightforward. So we took a synthetic DNA library containing like roughly 10 to the power of 15 different molecules. Means that each molecule has unique sequence. Unique sequence gives you unique shape. So imagine we had a pool of 10 to the power of 15 differently shaped uh, molecules, and we incubated with the recombinant and protein of the known sequence, which uh, we like we express by ourselves, or you can buy it in any company. So then incubated, washed out unbounders, and keep the bounder uh, bounders, like the DNA molecule which bound to the uh, and protein, then heat it up, or add urea, so we denature the complex, collected the the binders, and then uh, we amplify by PCR. And uh, we improve our PCR, we use the called uh, emulsion asymmetric PCR. So it's uh, asymmetric PCR producing single-stranded DNA, but in emulsion to increase the, uh, the kind of sensitivity and the yield of our product. And we repeated this uh, six times, so six rounds of selections. And then we obtained a pool of aptamer binding very well with the nanomolar affinity around like, I think five or seven uh, nanomole uh, apparent KG to the end protein. Sequence the entire pool by next gen sequencing and uh, pick the most representative means that uh, the sequences with the highest abundance. And we pick like, five clones and test them how well they bind to the end protein and other mutants by technique called BLI, so bilayer interferometry. So it's very straightforward technique where you can see the binding curve uh, over the time, so you can measure the KD and also rate constants like P on and Q off. And those KDs that you just mentioned, those are pretty, um, very tight binding of those um, sequences that you identify. Yeah. Can you uh, say a little bit more about why you chose to focus on the end protein as your target for your aptamer, as opposed to some of the other uh, tests uh, that had been approved that went after the spike protein uh, of COVID-19? Uh, to be honest, we started two selections in parallel to end protein, and to the spike protein. And actually, spike protein we did uh, uh, to actually to RBD and to S1 protein as well. And protein we we obtained aptamer faster, and then we also realized that in case of the sensor, so the end protein is not the bad uh, protein because first of all, it's very conservative between the different mutants of the SARS-CoV-2. Second, it's actually roughly 10 times uh, more present in the virus than the spike protein. So around 1,000 copies of N protein per virus particle and uh, around 72 copies of uh, 
as um, spike protein to virus particles. So roughly, again, the ratio is 1 to 10. So that's why for diagnostics, actually, you when you have the uh, same number of virus particles, you will have uh, more in protein. That's why your sensor will be better and will be more sensitive to the number of virus particles. So that's why, again, we, <laughs> we finished the project uh, faster and we also like now we are in the process of um, submitting article for uh, optimus to spike protein as well <laughs> that's great but again the end protein just to wrap up highly conserved um, less likely to mutate or alter uh, yes. which um, if the virus were to mutate you don't lose the ability to use your diagnostic test and have to develop another one that's catered for that particular mutant and then second, it's highly expressed, so obviously your test is more sensitive. Uh, so yeah. maybe you can pick up even early infections and prevent the spread of the of the virus. Correct? Uh, That's true. Or like diluted, like you can analyze diluted, diluted samples. Yeah, diluted samples. So like we used, for example, we tested saliva. So and uh, we diluted saliva that to decrease the interference from uh, other again, proteins. Got it. Got it. So you did um, you did test human saliva samples that were infected with. Um, OK, so do you do you see yourself um, uh, taking this, you know, this diagnostic um, into um, into the clinic? Uh, are you seeing yourself partnering um, with um, a pharmaceutical company or going into a different direction, maybe on a different now that, you know, I think the market is quite crowded uh, for this particular SARS-CoV-2. Uh, especially when it comes to diagnostics, um, do you see yourself going into a different direction? I would love to commercialize this uh, test. And of course, I'm happy to collaborate with any company. But we did the follow-up study. So once we developed and had the Optimus to earn protein, so we actually created a very interesting test. Like uh, we used two clones of, of the uh, this uh, Optimus 2N protein to different epitopes uh, and uh, use the proximity ligation to ligate the two Optimus when they bound to the N protein and produce, a, again, a longer DNA product that we can amplify by PCR. And we develop a test kit when we detect the end protein and viral RNA. Because viral RNA, we can do a reverse transcription and produce also cDNA. And in the in one while, at the same while, we had a DNA from Optimers, like double length uh, Optimer, and also cDNA from the viral RNA. And we use the real-time PCR to make, again, ultra-sensitive diagnostic of the virus, but based on the protein presence and the RNA presence. So like two tests in one vial. Yeah. So that's our, Very again, follow up. Uh, but also lower false positives, right, is what this would give you. Yeah. Yes. Um, is it's like a sandwich approach. Uh, hopefully, yes. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, I guess what you also started alluding to, I think, uh, briefly, is that essentially what you're really dealing with here is a platform technology 
that can be applied not only to develop um, uh, reagents for detection of uh, SARS-CoV-2, but also potentially against many other types of viruses or other pandemics out there uh, waiting to sort of, you know, happen. So do you see really um, this platform technology uh, being uh, employed to rapidly develop diagnostics for potential future pandemics? And how quickly do you think that it could move into the clinic? Like, is this uh, something that could happen tomorrow, uh, in a month, a year, longer, or? Before our conversation, I just uh, Google Optimus in clinics, and uh, I found like two FDA-approved Optimus, one in 19, uh, sorry, 2004 against uh, macular degeneration disease. And actually, the second one was approved uh, last, uh, RNA Optimus approved last year. So that's why the process is slowly uh, again developing in, uh, again, increasing number of uh, approved Optimus. For diagnostics, there are, again, many companies uh, producing diagnostic kits many of them actually to small molecules or toxins uh, or heavy metals. So because toxins can be developed not just to large like proteins or, or like viruses, they also can be produced to small molecules or antibiotics. And many companies like now like developing like, very like interesting diagnostic uh, uh, instruments and kits based on optimers, for example, for antibiotics, for toxins in uh, clinical samples or environmental samples. Yeah, it's coming. So again, in academia, almost any diagnostic uh, lab <laughs> try to use optimers. So I instead of, uh, uh, again, antibodies. Yeah. Because it's a logical step. When you cannot find a good antibody, the next logical step to look around of optimer field and like see if there uh, there is a existed optimer or you can develop quickly your own optimer. Yeah, and I guess you know I guess that's that's really interesting because one of the main questions that that I think many have in the field is that as you know optimers were discovered in you know the early 1990s um, and 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 the biggest question is why are there no optimer ther therapies out there um, you know based therapies or even optimer based diagnostics that are really approved in the clinic but in your mind what you're saying what you're seeing is that we are overcoming hurdles um, and and sort of changing that mindset that we had you know we've moved antibodies into the clinic um, We've been um, very comfortable with the idea of using antibodies as drugs, as diagnostics, but we are slowly coming up to speed with, on, on Aptimer technology. Is that correct? That's true. And I think the biggest problem with like, using Aptimers in uh, clinics and diagnostic tests, that we are full, we're trying to replace antibodies. And many companies, they ask uh, why we need to replace working antibodies. So my own approach, we try to find areas where you cannot use antibodies, but optimists, they do it very well instead of antibodies. And they're kind of unique for uh, for these research areas or, or, again, or clinical uh, questions. Like cell selects, when you develop Optimers to the whole viruses or whole cells. 
without knowing a priori before uh, the doing experiments, the biomarkers of uh, of cells. And when you develop patterns, you can select patterns specific to only one type of cancer versus another type of cancer, or um, uh, to one type of uh, immune cells versus another type of immune cells. You again, you don't need to know the biomarkers upfront. So when you do the selection, your optimers will find the molecular difference for you. And then you can use them immediately for the detection or when you pull down your, uh, again, the biomarkers and use the mass spec to identify the names of the biomarkers, you can actually confirm the binding between those uh, biomarkers and optimers. Yeah, that's great. And actually, it reminds me, uh, last time you and I talked, that you had brought up a really good point about the fact that um, now an approved um, therapeutic, like an mRNA therapeutic vaccine for COVID-19, mRNA technology um, and mRNA as a drug had been discovered and described in the early 1960s. Um, and it was not until really 50 to 60 years later that uh, we now have this mRNA-based therapeutic. And so it's possible that aptamers just need a little bit more time to blossom and develop. Um, but but you, uh, you're feeling very confident that we're getting there, right? Absolutely. Like, and when I... A positive note. <laughs> yeah, when I, I recruit uh, students to my lab, I tell them an example for it. If you're planning to to have expedition to Mars or to the moon, you will not take the entire drugstore with you. So like all thousands of possible like drugs and medications, it will be like too much weight for, for your rocket. So what do you need? You need to take a DNA synthesizer having four bottles of nucleotides and you can create any optimer to any target. So it's kind of a, a universal approach when you synthesize your drug on site. So that's maybe again when the optimist will like uh, apply widely uh, to our life. I love that analogy. Um, <laughs> and so um, I think we can conclude and especially on that really positive note. And so I, I again, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, and I would encourage all the listeners to keep an eye out uh, for further developments and application um, of your technology. So thank you again for listening. And, and thank you, Maxime, for uh, joining us. Thank you, Paloma. And thank you, everyone. And uh, again, I'm happy to again develop the after technology and like uh, see the like one day glory of uh, optimism in our life. Mm -hmm.